Good morning, church. It is good to see you. I hope that you have had a, those of you who had a spring break, I hope you had a wonderful, healthy, and restful spring break. Some of you didn't, I'm sorry. And uh, for others, it's been a week of great difficulty and, and tragedy and challenge. And so we come here this morning from a lot of different places. And we are in the process of Sunday by Sunday, we are talking about the gospel and how the gospel is good news and changes everything in our life when we understand it. And this morning, we're going to go back to the same chapter we were in last week, Luke chapter 7, if you want to be turning there. But as we begin this morning, I've asked Chris Gross, one of our brothers here, to come and share with us just a little bit about his own testimony of God, the gospel, and how it changes everything. And so, Chris, I'm going to ask you to join me here. And um, Chris, you told me we were talking last night at dinner. How, how old were you when you came to know Christ? 39. He was 39 years old. Okay. Now, how many of you came to know Christ after the age of 18? Okay. How many before the age of 18? Okay. The 18 and unders have it. So it's, you know, the older we get, it is more of a challenge for us to exercise faith. Children do it so easily. But, uh, but for someone to come to Christ later in life, it's a big deal. And so, Chris, what was your life like before you came to Christ? Well, I lived my life uh, to please myself, and that's, that's all I did. I mean, I might be nice to people, but uh, the essence of it was I was always just trying to get something for myself. And whenever something or someone no longer fed that, I tossed it away. What were, the, what were the circumstances that led up to you finally putting your trust in Christ? Well, 9-11 um, came and some things happened in my uh, uh, life that kind of scared me. And um, I was always kind of an intellectual person and I would, I, I thought I knew a lot of stuff. Uh, the truth of it was, is that I had, in, I had bought into the lies that the world told I also had changed my life to where everything I did, I justified it. I had an excuse for everything. And I finally asked God, who I didn't know who it was, um, would you just show me the truth? I don't know who you are. I don't know what you are. I just, just show me the truth. And I started reading my Bible. Um, and after a couple of months, and started going to a church. And after a couple of months, it, I found out that... Uh, I was too bad to be saved. I had sinned so much and, and hurt God so much that there was no hope for me. But God is good, and he opened up my eyes to the truth that even I can be saved, and he saved me. Amen. Was there a, was there a particular scripture, or was there an individual that helped you at that moment in your life? Um, where I was working at... Um, I mean, uh, when I was raised up, um, my dad went to a Baptist church, my mother went to a Methodist church, and I kind of was going back and forth, and the only reason I went there was to be with other people my age, and I really didn't care about what they were saying. Uh, so I didn't really get a whole lot, I, but evidently I got some. Right before this happened, there was two um, people. There was a, a young man who um, I watched him be kind to people um, that I was never kind to. Um, someone who had tried to commit suicide. And I just kind of went, whatever. And he sat there and talked to her for a long time. 
And I thought, you know, that seems to be something different than what I've seen before. And the other one was this 300-pound guy that used to be a crack dealer that, um, and was no longer, was a Christian. And he came up and told me the truth. Um, and when someone's 300 pounds and they're in your face, you kind of stay there and listen to them. Um, and so it kind of, it, that's what started, that's kind of what started the ball rolling, that, that, the truth of that. And uh, it wasn't really a particular passage. It was, it was just that. Chris, how, how has Jesus changed your life since you were 39? I think about other people a lot more. And uh, it's good to know, it's kind of like with your parents, when you know your parents are going to keep accepting you, even though you mess up all the time, it's good to know that God keeps accepting me. He's forgiven my sins. And I know what I was owed. And I can honestly tell you that I still believe that I'm owed that. But Jesus took that. And uh, so my life changed for the simple fact is that um, I believe someone described me before my salvation. That's the uh, most unhappy man I've ever met. And they don't say that anymore. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Chris. Would you all bow your heads with us and close your eyes for just a moment? You know, we're talking about the gospel and how Jesus is good news and changes lives. At the end of this message, I'm going to give you the opportunity to put your trust in Christ. If you've never trusted him before as your Lord and Savior, I want you to know that he changes everything, just like he did for Chris. And, um, and we want to pray for you, and we want to pray as we continue. Father, thank you, precious Lord, for reaching down and saving a man like Chris. And Father, we can, we can listen to him and listen to what life was like before he was 39. And there are many of us that can identify with him. And we realize, Father, that's where we were. And some of us who came to know Jesus, our lives have changed, just like Chris's life has changed. But Father, we know that there are others here this morning, some listening to my voice, and they don't know you. And they're seeking this morning, and they're looking for answers. We pray that your Holy Spirit would meet them this morning as we look at your word, as we study together. That you would speak to their heart just like you spoke to Chris and so many others here. So, Father, we want to give you our full attention. We welcome you here, Holy Spirit. Do among us whatever you want to do. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Chris. Y'all express your appreciation to Chris. You know, when, when we talk about the gospel, sometimes we, we narrow our understanding of the gospel to just a few basic facts. Jesus came, Jesus died, Jesus was buried and was raised again. But you know, the message of the cross is so much more in terms of how that changes our life. And so what we're trying to do each week is look at specific individuals in Scripture whom Jesus came face to face with, and as he encountered them, their life was changed forever. Another one of those we want to look at today is a man commonly referred to as the centurion. We don't know his name, but we find him in the opening verses of Luke chapter 7. The title of this morning's message is The Gospel on Your Faith. The Gospel on Your Faith. How does the gospel have good news for you about your faith? And that's what we want to explore today as we look at this centurion. 
Now, I'm going to begin reading in verse 1. You can follow along in your Bible, and, um, and it'll also be up on the screen. Luke 7. Now, when he concluded all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. And a certain centurion servant who was dear to him was sick and ready to die. So when he heard about Jesus, he sent elders of the Jews to him, pleading with him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they begged him earnestly, saying that the one for whom he should do this was deserving, for he loves our nation and has built us a synagogue. Then Jesus went with them, and when he was already not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy that you should enter under my roof. Therefore, I did not even think myself worthy to come to you, but say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man placed under authority, having soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him and turned around and said to the crowd that followed him, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. And those who were sent returning to the house found the servant well who had been sick. The faith of this man amazed Jesus Christ. And there was something happening in this exchange that helps you and I better understand how the gospel speaks to us about our faith. Now, there's nothing like a crisis that rearranges our world. Some of you may be in a crisis this morning. I know very definitely there are families connected to our church who are experiencing a measure of crisis today. And there's nothing like a crisis that brings you and I to a place where we begin to rethink our priorities and we begin to ask solid questions and good questions. Uh, and it's humbling to us, very humbling to us. I, I heard a story I watched uh, Billy Graham give a TED Talk. You know what TED Talks are? I never knew Billy Graham gave one, but I found one. You can go out and watch it online sometime. But, um, but Billy Graham was giving a TED Talk, and as he opened it up, he told a story about getting on an airplane uh, in North Carolina, where he's from, and flying somewhere. And the mayor of one of the big cities in North Carolina was on the plane with him. And he knew this man, and that man knew him. But there was also another man sitting very close to where they were, who was extremely inebriated. You know what that is, don't you? Drunk, out of his mind, didn't know what he was doing, didn't know what he was saying, was saying, talking loudly, he was being obnoxious, he was, he was pinching the stewardesses as they went by, he was just a terrible kind of guy. And finally, the mayor of this city turned around to him and said, would you please behave yourself and be quiet and stop what you're doing? He said, would you stop? And the man just kind of blew him off and said some ugly things to him. And then the mayor pointed over to Billy Graham. He said, do you know who this is? And the drunk said, no, I don't know who he is. He said, that's Billy Graham. And the drunk looked at Billy and said, are you Billy Graham? Billy Graham said, yes. He said, well, it's blankety blank good to meet you. He said, your sermons have helped me a lot. I feel that way sometimes. <laughs> That's pretty humbling. 
pretty humbling. <laughs> and um, do your best, whatever. In verse 2, the Bible says, And a certain centurion servant who was dear to him was sick and ready to die. He was right there. He was so ill. I mean, the very language in the text was that he was, he was just at death's door. And this young man probably was very precious to the centurion. And for the centurion, this precipitated a crisis. Now, we just talked about a crisis of belief in our last series where we studied what it means to experience God. And a crisis of belief is that moment when you know God is telling you to do something. God is directing you. God is speaking. And you have a decision to make. Am I going to obey God? Am I going to make the adjustments in my life and do what God wants me to do? Or am I going to do my own thing? And the very next thing you do when you know God's speaking to you is the real truth about what you believe about God. And crisis does that. It has a way of exposing what you really believe in. Now, we may say we believe in certain things, but crisis has a way of showing what we really believe in. You may believe truthfully, no one may know this about you, but you may believe more in yourself than anybody else. I can take care of me better than anybody else can take care of me, better than God can take care of me. And you have confidence in yourself. You may have confidence in your own morality or your own ethics or your own integrity. And I would never do what those people do. And you kind of look down on other people because you have such confidence in yourself. And that may be where your confidence is. You may have confidence in science. You don't believe in religious things. You're smarter than that. And you may believe in, in the advancements of technology and the advancements of human knowledge and the advancements of medical science. And, and so when you're sick or you're ill or there's something going wrong in your life, you put your trust in that. You may be superstitious. There are some people sitting in our churches that don't really have a biblical conception of who God is. And what they have is kind of a hand-me-down, piece-together faith of several generations and and you just say, well, if I do this, then that'll please God, and then he'll, he'll be happy with me, and he'll do what I'm asking him to do. If I pray a certain way, say certain words, recite certain written prayers or whatever, then God will do things for me, just like a, like a sorcerer works a magic trick. But crisis has a way of exposing that, showing us what it is that we're, that we're trusting in. It also exposes to you and me the doubts that we have about the objects of our faith. Because a lot of times we get into a crisis and we discover that whatever I was trusting in, it was the wrong thing. And it was weak. And it's not helping me. And, and I'm still afraid. And I'm still anxious. And I begin asking questions that the truth is, I have them all the time. But I don't admit them until I'm in a crisis. Why am I here? Uh, where am I going to go when I die? Is my life going to matter? Is God really there? And crisis just has a way of exposing those questions. They're always there, but it has a way of exposing them. And when that happens, crisis is one of those moments when many people change the object of their faith. It's often at the end of a, a crisis that you'll see many people come to Christ. We call it foxhole religion or foxhole faith. And, and that's a very real phenomenon. And listen to me, there's nothing wrong with that. It's if God brought or allowed that crisis to come into your life and you realized, hey, this stuff I was trusting in, it's not working for me. Jesus, he is real. I'm going to trust him. There's nothing wrong with that. But it, it challenges us and helps us expose our doubts. But you know what it also does? It shows us the reliability of what we're trusting in. That what I'm trusting in, is, is it going to take care of me? Is it real? 
is it, is it sufficient? And we begin to think about the reliability of those objects. One of the myths that you and I have about faith is that if I believe something hard enough, that, that that's what matters most. It doesn't matter what I'm believing in. It doesn't matter what God I believe in. It doesn't matter what religion I participate in. As long as I believe in it with all my heart, well, then I'm with everybody else going to the same place, and uh, we all wind up at the same spot. But listen, that's a myth. Um, the intensity of your faith is not what we're talking about today. The perfection of your faith is not what we're talking about today. We're just talking about the existence of, of faith and what real faith is. But the intensity of your faith or this emotionalism sometimes, well, I believe it, I believe it, I believe it with all my heart. I have great assurance. I know that this is, must be the truth, and I put all my heart into it. That is a myth. Imagine two mountain climbers for just a moment, and they are stranded on a ledge halfway up a sheer face, a rock cliff. And out to the left side, there's a piece of rock sticking out, and it looks like that might be the way up to the top. They're skilled mountain climbers. They're looking at that rock outcropping. The other, on the other side of them, there's another rock outcropping. One of the mountain climbers looks over here to the left. He says, I believe that that is firm. I believe that that is the rock that we need to go and use to get up the face of the mountain. And I have great assurance that that is the one. I believe in it with all my heart. The other climber says, you know, I'm just scared to death. Boy, I would be if I was up on a, on a ledge like that. And I look out there to the, that rock to the right and the rock to the left. I said, you know, I'm not sure which one I ought to put my trust in. But I think I'm going to go this way. Scared to death, not sure, not 100% sure, but I've got just enough faith to go ahead and try that one. Well, the first guy who has full assurance and he believes it really hard, he goes over and takes that first rock. It crumbles under his feet. He falls to his death. The other guy goes and he takes the rock and he makes it up the, up the face of the mountain. Now, was it faith that saved the guy? Was it faith that saved the climbers? No. It was a matter of the rock. It's a matter of getting your faith in the right rock. And not everything is a rock. And so as we go through and we talk about faith this morning for the next few minutes, we want to understand that this man, this centurion, was in a crisis the wheels were coming off of his life because of what was happening to this servant. And he obviously had great affection, great care for this servant. Maybe this servant was like a son to him. Maybe he didn't have children. Maybe he was going to adopt him and make him a son. And that happened in Roman culture. We don't know the situation. We just know he was deeply, deeply in a crisis. Now, last week we started, and I mentioned to you, 1 Corinthians 1.18. And that, that verse, Paul writes, and he says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And so, so today we're talking about the message or the gospel that is the power of God. And specifically, I want to talk to you about how the gospel changes your faith and the good news about your faith. What is the good news about your faith? Number one, Jesus responds to people who are looking for him. Jesus responds to people who are looking for him. Look again, would you, at verse 3. The Bible says, so when he heard about Jesus, 
He sent elders of the Jews to him, pleading with him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they begged him earnestly, saying that the one for whom he should do this was deserving. For he loves our nation and has built us a synagogue. Now look back at verse 3. We want to think and look closely at the centurion. Look at what it says. So when he heard about Jesus. You know what was going on in Capernaum? People were being healed. Demons were being expelled from people's lives. And Jesus was preaching a message about the presence of God and his rule over this world that was absolutely intoxicating to the people who heard him. And he had hundreds and hundreds of people following him, listening to him. And this man heard about Jesus. Now, he's in a crisis, and he hears about Jesus. For him, Jesus was the good news he was looking for. Now, he, he, I don't know if he had doubts. I don't know if he was what was going on in his heart at that specific moment. But he was looking for Jesus. When he heard about Jesus was, was what pulled the trigger on everything that follows in this story. So he sent a request. And if you look at the text closely, his request had two parts. Jesus, would you come? And Jesus, would you heal my servant? So there were two parts to it. And, and he, doesn't, he doesn't justify his request. He doesn't doctor his request. He doesn't say, look, I'm a great guy. You ought to do this for me. I have done all these things. He doesn't do that. He just simply makes the request. Would you come? Would you do this for my servant? Now, he sent it through the elders, and when the Bible refers to the elders, it's talking about the religious leaders who were in charge at the local synagogue in Capernaum. And he had built a relationship with these men. And he says, would you guys go and give this message to Jesus for me? So they go. And he sends it through the elders. Now, he's not trying to be manipulative. He's not trying to be political. As we'll see here in a moment, he's actually being quite humble. But the elders took his request a whole different direction. The elders had it all wrong. They made their case for Jesus to come. They made their case for Jesus to heal based on the worthiness of the centurion. They said, he loves our people. He is charitable. He has built a synagogue. He has done some good works. And because of that, he is deserving, Jesus, of you to come and you to work in his life. Now, if nothing else, this exposes for us what the religious elders were trusting in. Do you get it? They were trusting in what? Themselves, their works, their goodness, that that somehow gets God's attention. My righteousness, my goodness, all the things that I can do right. Well, the point is, Jesus went with them anyway. They had it all wrong, but the Bible says in verse 6, they just, he went with them anyway. Sometimes we put too much faith in our faith. We put all the focus on our faith and not enough focus on Jesus, who is the object of our faith. We think to ourselves that God hears me when I am right with him. God hears me when I am, have a certain kind of faith that meets certain qualifications and meets certain standards. In fact, um, later on in this chapter, we're going to look at this story later of Simon and a sinful woman that was caught 
in sin. And at the very end of the chapter, very last verse of chapter 7, uh, he said to the woman, Jesus says, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. And you and I read that and we think immediately, oh my goodness. Do I have the kind of faith that can save me? Is my faith good enough? Is my faith right enough? Is my faith pure enough? Have I, is it perfect? Because it, he said to her those words. But listen, wait till we get to that story for one thing. But for another, Jesus is teaching something else here. Um, in Mark chapter 9, we have a situation where Jesus is confronted with a demonized boy. And he turns to the father who's been asking him uh, to cast this demon out. And Jesus says, do you believe? Do you believe? And the man says, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Now, that's about the most honest answer in Scripture. Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. And he's struggling, but it was enough. Faith, the size of a mustard seed, put in the right object, Jesus, can move mountains. And so in this particular case, we see that the text is clear. Jesus simply heard about a man who was asking for him. A man who was asking for him to come and heal his servant. He wasn't asking for anybody else to do it. He was looking for Jesus. He was searching for him. And he just wanted Jesus to come and to do this. And it was clear the man was trusting him. Listen, Jesus responds to the faith that you have. Not the faith you don't have. And so don't get caught up this morning as we talk about faith. Just realize that Jesus heard enough when he heard that the man was looking to him to come and help him. Jesus heard need, and Jesus moved based on that need. In James chapter 4, verse 7, the Bible says, Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. And this centurion was crying out for God in his life. So what's the good news about your faith? Well, the first thing is that Jesus responds to those who are looking for him. But there's a second thing. Jesus is looking for your faith and nothing else. He's looking inside your heart for your faith, nothing else. As the story unfolds and continues, the man, the centurion, sends his friends to go talk to Jesus. Now, you gotta, you gotta get, gotta have an imagination, gotta get into the story. The man's servant is sick. He sends the elders. Jesus agrees to go, and he's traveling with the elders to go see the centurion. The centurion is probably waiting on his front step or looking out his gate. And as Jesus comes into view, I'm thinking this man was horrified all of a sudden. He was horrified because he immediately sensed something about Jesus, that, and he felt unworthy for Jesus to come to him. And he reacts to that. So he sends his friends. And, and the friends, unlike the elders, they come and just, they just kind of boil it down to the, the bare facts. And the friends go and speak to him. But what's interesting is this man feels unworthy. The elders said, he's worthy. The man said, I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy. You see, people look at you a certain way. They may think you're a great guy. They may think you're a, a great woman. But you know the truth about your heart, don't you? You know the truth about you. In this particular case, this man was feeling this intensely, and he sends his friends. Now, they go with a message, and they, the message is, I'm not worthy. You don't have to come to my house. He uses two different words to describe his worth. The first one describes his own character, 
and he says, I am not worthy for you to come under my roof. I'm not a good guy. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not the kind of guy you want to go to his house and hang out with. I'm not a godly guy. I'm not a good guy. And, and something is different about you, and I just know this. You don't need to be in my house. I probably got stuff in my house that are wrong. I don't even know it's wrong, and I don't need you to come under my roof. And so he was feeling that intensely. The second word, the second time he says, and that's why I didn't even consider myself worthy to come to you. He said, and, and, and he uses a different word for worthy there. And that word means entitled. There's nothing about me that deserves you coming to my house or coming to my life or doing anything I ask you to do. But then he does something pretty interesting. He says, I still have a need. I'm not worthy. I feel like my life's pretty messed up. My life's off the rails. But I still have a need. And I still think you're the only one that can meet it. He says in so many words, let me paraphrase. Jesus, I get you. I get you. I'm a centurion. I'm a guy that commands a hundred soldiers. And I work under generals. And, and the authority that I have comes from the very fact that I'm a centurion under their authority. And those generals, those generals operate under the emperor. And, and the emperor has all the, uh, the governmental and political authority in the Roman Empire. And because he has authority, the generals can give orders and I can give orders. And people do what we say. He said, Jesus, you are connected to God like no man I've ever seen. And when you speak, all you got to do is give the word. Give the word and things happen. Just like when I tell soldiers to do things, just like when I tell servants to do things, I just say the word. They make it a reality. All you have to do is say the word and my servant will be healed. Just one word. And Jesus is amazed. This man comes to Jesus Christ and he's explained it, but he comes to Jesus based on who Jesus is, not on who he is. And dear one, that doesn't change before you're a Christian or after a Christian. I never come based on who I am. I can always come because of who he is. And he understood that there was something in the presence of God around this man, Jesus, I don't think he had probably everything, every theological T crossed and every I dotted, but I believe he understood something of the presence of God in Jesus' life. I think his sense of unworthiness flowed from that realization that God was, was in Christ, God was doing something through this man. But he also saw more than that. He saw something of the message of Jesus and the, the ministry of Jesus, the mission of Jesus, and he bought into it. Jesus was reconciling men to God. Jesus was saying, come to him. He wants you to come to him. I'm like a shepherd who's lost a sheep. I'm like a woman who's lost one of her, her decorative coins. I'm like, I'm like a father waiting for a son to come home. And he heard the messages. He heard the mission that, that God wants to reconcile us to himself. He wants to bring you and every one of us into a relationship with him based on love. And he got that. He understood that. I messed up. I'm not worthy. But it's all about you, Christ. It's all about you, Jesus. And it's based on who you are, not on who I am. Do you get Jesus? Do you understand him like that? That it's not about you? It's not about what you've done? 
It's not about who you are. So Jesus hears this man, and he's stunned. Listen to verse 9. Listen to verse 9. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him and turned around and said to the crowd that followed him, I say to you, I have not found such great faith. Now, the fact that he uses the word found means what is he looking for? Faith. And, um, and we just said that. Uh, the, the whole idea behind the, this being good news is that Jesus is looking into your heart. He's looking for faith, nothing else. He's not looking at whether you're worthy, not worthy, whether you have enough good works, uh, too many bad works. He's not looking that way. You heard what Chris talked about. He's not looking at those things. He's looking for faith, real faith. He says, I've not found such great faith. I think the verse that, that God used, I know the verse that God used to completely overturn my understanding of God was Ephesians 2.8. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, the Apostle Paul writes these words. For by grace, and the word grace means something that you don't deserve. Something that is a gift, you didn't earn it, you don't deserve it. He says this, for by grace... Are you saved? For by grace are you saved through faith. And so faith becomes the very thing that he's waiting for, the very thing he's looking for in my heart. And that when I extend faith to him and say, I'm going to trust Jesus, faith alone in Christ alone, he says, by grace, not, not, I don't deserve it, but by grace he saves me. By grace, my sin debt is paid. By grace, my sins are carried away on the cross of Christ. By grace, are you saved? In John 3.16, the Bible says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. In John 3.36, he says, He who believes in the Son has eternal life. In Acts 16.31, a man who was scared to death for his very life turned to Paul after an earthquake. He said, what must I do to be saved? And Paul said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Faith. And that's what he's looking for in your heart. So what's the good news about your faith? Jesus responds to those who are looking for him. Are you looking for him today? The second thing is that Jesus is looking for your faith and nothing else. He looks past what everybody else thinks. Uh, the elders thought that he was a great guy. They look, he looks past what you think. <laughs> the man didn't think he was worthy. You, he looks past what everybody thinks. He looks past what you think. He's looking for one thing. He looks deep into your heart. Do you trust him? What's the good news about your faith? Number three. The faith you have right now, when placed in Jesus, is enough to change your life forever. Why did Jesus call it a great faith? That word great means a lot. You know, we have a great crowd, means we got a lot of people here. He says, I've never seen great faith like this. I've never seen a guy with this much faith. Um, What's he talking about? I brought with me an Easter egg basket. 
and in it are Easter eggs. I want you to use your imagination. Can you do that? Anybody here doesn't have an imagination? I'm talking about you, not the person next to you. Okay. I want you to imagine this basket represents the entirety of your faith. The entirety of your faith. Every possible ounce of faith you could ever have in your life is in this basket. All right? Now, here's what happens. And this can happen to a Christian. It can happen to a non-Christian. doesn't matter. Here's what we do. We take pieces of our faith, and we put it in different things. Okay? So I take a piece of faith, and I'll put it in my doctor. I'll take another piece of faith, and I'll put it in my bank account. I'll take another piece of faith, and I'll put it in my wisdom, my own intelligence. I'll take another piece of faith, and I'll put it in something else. And then maybe if I got a little bit left over, I'll put my faith in Jesus to take me to heaven when I die. You see? When he talked about great faith, do you know what he was saying? He's saying this man has great faith. You know why? Because he's taken faith in everything else, all those other things. He takes faith away from every other possible thing he could ever trust. And he's taken every aspect of his faith, every piece of his faith, everything he could possibly trust in life, and he's put all his eggs in one basket. He's only trusting Jesus. All aspects of his faith in one place. You say, well, I don't, I don't believe in God. I don't believe in Jesus. I don't believe in those things. Let me Listen to me. You put your faith where you want to, okay? You put your faith in any of those things I listed. Maybe you're trusting something else. Maybe you believe your own theological conception of God. Maybe you're, you consider yourself an atheist and you put your faith in that. It takes as much faith not to believe in God as it does to believe in God. Because you're believing in something. And you say, well, he hasn't proven himself to me. I, I don't know that he really exists. I don't know that it's true. The whole nature of faith is that you can't prove it. If you could prove it, it wouldn't be faith. And so the nature of saving faith is that I go and Jesus dies for me on the cross. He says he's my Savior. The Bible says in Romans 10, and if I confess with my mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in my heart that God's raised him from the dead, I will be saved. And so I take that step. I can't prove it. I can't tell you that it's true but I put my trust in Christ, that takes faith. But you know what? Not to take that step also takes faith. It takes as much faith to put my trust in science, it takes my, as much faith to put my trust in myself or my bank account or my doctor or a thousand other things as it is to put my trust in Christ. All of us are creatures of faith. It's a matter of what you're trusting this morning, where you put your faith this morning. So that's what makes Jesus. This man had taken every piece of his faith and he'd put it in Jesus. Great faith. <laughs> Great faith. God can do more with a man of faith than he can with a man of good works. God can do more with a man who's focused on who God is than who's worried all the time about himself and whether he's good enough and whether he's, he's done all the things that he needs to do to earn heaven. All of us are going to die. There's 100% mortality in this room this morning. And the moment after you die, the Bible explains to us that there are two destinations that await you and me. I can go to heaven where my soul will experience the presence of God for all eternity, or I will go to hell where my soul will experience the absence of God for all eternity. And so if I go to heaven 
And uh, if we were to have this hypothetical conversation where God was to say, why should I let you into my heaven? Do you have an understanding now of what he's looking for? Now, he's not looking just for the right answer. You understand that. He's looking for something that would have begun on, on this side of heaven. He's looking for someone who's trusted him now. It's too late then. And as I go and stand before holy God, am I going to go to him and say, well, look, I was pastor of Wim Baptist Church. That's a great church. That's pretty hot stuff. Just ask me, Lord. You think that's going to mean anything? No. I come to him the same way anybody here comes to him. It's not based on my works, not based on my credentials, not based on my goodness, not based on my intelligence, not based on anything that I possess, because I won't possess anything at that moment, except, Lord, in 1978, as a 17-year-old boy, I put my trust in Jesus to save me from my sins. When I was 17, I trusted you to come into my life and to change me. And Lord, you did. And I'm so excited that I get to be with you now. Can you have that kind of conversation with the Lord? Are you ready to meet Jesus? Are you ready to go into eternity? I tell you what, on a weekend like this where you and I have got funerals for dear ones, there'll be a funeral in this auditorium at 2 o'clock. There'll be one down the road at 2 o'clock. There'll be one in here tomorrow at 2 o'clock. We got, we got funerals. Somebody else uh, found out last night their dad passed away. Listen, you're not guaranteed 10 years, 20 years, 30 years. You're not guaranteed 30 minutes. You may not make it home. I'm not playing games with your mind or your heart. I'm just speaking the truth. Have you trusted Christ? Do you know him? Let me ask you to bow your head and to close your eyes. If you're my brother and my sister in Christ, I just invite you to pray. Pray for yourself. Ask the Holy Spirit to show you your own faith. How strong is your faith right now? Are you trusting in other things? Even as a Christian, are you trusting in other things? Or have you put all your trust in Jesus today? And every day, to walk with him by faith. We're saved by faith, we walk with him by faith. There's no other way. That's what we're called to. If you don't know Christ this morning, I want you to know that salvation is by grace through faith. It is a gift from God. It's not based on how much you can clean up your act in the next five minutes. It's not based on how good or not good you have been. Your salvation is based purely and solely on what Jesus Christ did for you on the cross. I want to invite you, if you've never trusted him today, to come to Christ, to publicly claim him, put your trust in him. Pastors will be standing down here at the front. They'll be ready to talk with you. They'll counsel with you. They'll share scripture with you. If you have questions, they'll answer them. And if you need more time, we'll let you wait. But dear one, don't wait to come to Jesus this morning.